Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. So even before I became active on LinkedIn, I was following my guest today. As you may know, there are countless LinkedIn trainers, experts, and gurus out there, but I got to say, I don't think anyone has contributed as much as Andy Foote. He's been active on the platform, and I mean very active on the platform, since 2008. He has a very successful website, which gets over 50,000 visitors a month. He manages eight different LinkedIn groups, which cumulatively have over 40,000 members. And he is the host of the appropriately named podcast, Footnotes. Today, we'll learn all about his journey from the very beginning, going all the way back to childhood. And of course, we'll dive deep into his LinkedIn journey. He'll share his insights on the mysterious algorithm and hopefully shed some light into how it works. He gives us his unfiltered thoughts on all the shortcuts that people take trying to hack that algorithm and why he thinks you should not do that and why he feels it's potentially brand damaging to take that path. He'll share what type of content works best and why it works. And we get a sneak peek into his LinkedIn wish list for all the things he hopes will one day become a reality. So if you're not yet active on LinkedIn, this will be a great introduction and great way to get started. And if you are active on LinkedIn, then I'm pretty sure you already know who Andy is, and this will be a great opportunity to learn from him. I'm excited about this one, so let's jump straight in to the conversation. Andy Foote, welcome to Inside Out. Billy Samoa Salibi, how are you, dear boy? Oh, man. And you pronounced it correctly. I'm impressed. I haven't even updated my LinkedIn profile to make it easy on you either. So I appreciate that. I feel, though, Billy, that I ought to sort of change my name and insert like a a cool island in there too. So maybe (laughs) Andy Hawaii Foot. If you're going to do it, dude, then I think I'm going to do it. Oh, man. I love it. I love it. Well, it's a true honor. So I've been active on LinkedIn all of this year, but I've, I've been on LinkedIn since 2007, and I have known of your work for quite some time. I, I can't pinpoint exactly when I first found you, but it's been years. And you, my friend, are, and you would never say this about yourself, but you're legendary status. So it's, it is a true honor to have you on the show, to learn from you, to talk. And I want to go back in time. You are a product of 
the post-occupation of Germany. You were born in Germany. You're an army brat. You spent your youngest years in Edinburgh, and then you spent your formative years in Germany. You went to college in Sussex. You studied law. I'm curious, though. All that moving around does something to you, because it would to anyone. I'm curious how it impacted you and and make you who you are today. And specifically, I want to talk about your sense of humor because the sense of humor is something that you infuse in in everything that you do. And I really appreciate that. So where does all that come from? Yeah. So I very much believe in the environment, right, that you're in. So nurture more than nature, I think. And in particular, as an army brat, British forces brat, my dad being in the Scottish armed cavalry, Mm. The postings on average, Billy, were moving every three to four years. That's what it amounted to. So I was continually the new kid on the block. And I quickly realized that, boy, you better get with the program, right? Because if you're continually going to be this fresh face at school, how are you going to treat that situation? How are you going to make that work to your advantage? And I could go two ways. I could just be shy and retiring and kind of stay in the background, or I could be the person that comes out with a you know an outstretched hand and say, "Hey, pleased to meet you. My name is." <laughs> and that's what I decided. That's what I was quite comfortable with after a while. And so I was continually gregarious, and I was very social, and I quickly built friendships and like a base for myself wherever I was. And I became this almost like a raconteur, right? Almost a, like the storyteller. I would always be telling stories about what I'd heard, what I learned, what I wanted to share with my mates, right? Mm. As the Brits would call them, our friends. So that's, I think that shaped me. That was very formative, that moving around a lot. And to this day, I'll drive my daughter crazy because if we're on vacay and she's just hanging out with the parents too much, there's a, a girl similar age over there in the next pool or near us. I would say, hey, go over there and say hi. And she would say, no, I'm not doing that. I said, no, this is how it's done. Hello, my name is da-da-da. Pleased to meet you. No, dad, I'm not going to do it. No, don't, don't make me do it. So that was all about, look, this is what I've learned and it works. Be the extrovert, even if it doesn't feel comfortable initially, because that's the way to succeed in life. It's very simple. And the comedic element, Billy, is all about my dad, because my dad has got an insane sense of humor. You know, sometimes it's irreverent, often it's irreverent, but he's got this funny bone and I dig it and I love it. And I think being funny is also, you know, a way of showing your intelligence. I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, depending on what you're joking about, I think it's a, it can be social commentary and I think it can strike a chord and I think it can tell a heck of a lot about an individual in the way that you express yourself and, you know, it doesn't always have to be serious. That's a really great point. I think that when you infuse humor in in what you do, it does add an element of intelligence and it adds a layer to it that otherwise wouldn't be there. And I think it's really an amazing thing when we can draw from the people in our lives. I have a similar thing with my dad, who's quite funny. He did stand-up comedy to his own admission, not very successfully, but he did it. And I think the other thing you said is running towards those things that you're uncomfortable with. I do the same thing with my son. He's only eight, but he struggles to get out of the introverted default that he has. And I urge him, maybe a little bit too much so, but I urge him to do what you've just said. And I think it does pay off. I mean, you did it out of necessity. You've also described yourself as a polymath, which I think that's also interesting because you're, it's funny too, because you are very focused on LinkedIn, but you're, you're focused on many aspects of LinkedIn, but you're also not just focused on LinkedIn. Does that come from the same place or where do you think that comes from? 
Yeah, I think you know, in a word, it it comes from Google. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I joke. I joke. We don't need short term memory these days, right? Because that's what that's what Google's for. So I don't have to retain anything. A few weeks, a few months, I'll just go and re- remind myself or inform myself on the Google box. But I think that's where the self-learning, right, the desire and perhaps ability to continually educate oneself, I think that that's primarily where it comes from. It's the web and it's rabbit holes and it's spending endless amount of time researching and then hopefully leveraging what you've learned, what you've discovered. And to an extent, that's my approach on LinkedIn too, is that I want to learn as much as I possibly can. But I think I recognize that there are only certain things that most other people would be interested in. I can tell, for example, before I write something, whether or not it's going to be you know, moderately popular or highly popular. There are some things just historically that I know will strike a chord. Anything, for example, algo related is going to be a, an engagement winner because everyone is interested in the rules of the game. Mm. You know, to a lesser or greater extent, but they are interested, particularly as things change all the time, as the algo is tweaked continually, whether it's to you know try and deal with pods or whether it's dwell time because we're lazy and we don't click. So data scientists are trying to monitor what we're doing doing in you know with our scrolling behavior instead. So yeah, that's the way that I approach it. I've got this. I, I think I've got endless curiosity about a lot of different subjects. Some more relevant than others. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all? Well, I'll tell you, man. When you provide new information that they that people can't find elsewhere, or you're delivering it in a new and unique way, that generally wins. And what I love about your approach is you're not claiming to have found all of this information or or have even done all the studies, but what you've done is you've pulled from so many different people who have invested a lot of time and you yourself have also invested a lot of time, but you make it digestible. You write like you talk. All of these things help to make it super easy for somebody like me to consume this information and to grow our own knowledge base. In 2008, you were at home, homebound with your daughter, I believe. And that kind of led to you exploring LinkedIn. And you got your start in the group space, really starting a lot of groups. Some of them you passed off to other people. Some of them you you kept. Why did you start that way? How did it go? And why is LinkedIn, let's face it, missing the mark when it comes to groups? Yeah, someone's been doing their research on me. <laughs> someone's someone's been listening to other podcasts because this sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, kudos for researching, and I'd not, I'd expect nothing less, frankly, because you're a, you're a you're a pro. You teach this stuff, so no surprise. You're exactly right. I started in Charlotte. That's where we were based at the time. My wife was working with Bank of America. They're based there. And I had the toddler, I had my little one uh, right next to me, and I was on the laptop and I discovered this thing. This would have been around about 2007, 2008. I discovered this thing called LinkedIn. And I thought, oh, this is interesting because I was always the guy, you know, I was talking about how very social I've been throughout my life. And what I realized very quickly is that this is a platform that really enables me to be as social as I want, but with objectives, with some strategy behind it. I'm not sure quite why I focused on groups initially. I think maybe, Billy, it had something to do with the fact that I could build stuff and in particular communities. And further, I had a free reign, right? I could build them around any 
topic, any subject I wanted. So that was very attractive to me. And you're right, I did start building these communities and I was competitive even back then because some of those communities, which weren't growing fast enough in my estimation, I did indeed go to existing members and I said, hey, do you want to run this group because I'm ready to move on with these others? Because at the time, you know, I think the quota for running your groups was something like 10 and now it's, I don't know, 50 or so. That's where I started. And yeah, Groups is a terrific product. Back in the day, there was a league of groups. So you could see which groups were doing really, really well in terms of all kinds of stats, frankly. And you could see how fast they were growing. And I was in in competition with groups of in a similar area and there was bonding and then there was also an official group started by LinkedIn which was I think the LinkedIn groups product forum something along those lines there are a bunch of group owners including myself who use that um, that group as a place to vent but also to try and give advice to LinkedIn and try mm-hmm. and you know try to make the product the so-called product better unfortunately I don't know if uh, our voices reached a cacophony if perhaps there was perhaps too much criticism, but LinkedIn made the decision to close that group. Oh, interesting. It was summarily closed. There was no explanation. It just deleted. It was incredible to me and a lot of other members there because don't forget, you know, you've got your number one fans on this forum who are totally into a particular section of LinkedIn and were coming from a place of love. And there was so much ideation, so many good, good suggestions made. And I, I started an index of all of the great ideas that we were, well, not all of them, but all of the ideas that were being suggested. And of course, when that, you know, with that deletion, went that, when that index, all of that data, all of that content, just gone. I think that's, you know, why am I telling you this? I think that's the way that LinkedIn operates, frankly. I think it's top down. A lot of the folks who were at LinkedIn in the early days came from Yahoo. Yahoo had that same uh, that same mindset, frankly. It was kind of take no prisoners, kind of like Apple and no focus groups, right? We know better than you. Mm. And, you know, and so that's where it's coming from. I think with groups, uh, fundamentally, they just don't see it as a moneymaker. And they also are probably thinking, you know what, why do we need groups? Why, why do we need to do anything at all with groups? I'm pretty sure they're not going to get rid of them altogether. That would be a huge admission of failure. But if you look at everything that's happening around posts and, you know, that 1300 character bite attention snacking, as uh, one of my French counterparts uh, calls it, it's, it's true, right? It's, it's like sure. his Cyril Bladier, two days ago, he wrote a post because what else would he write? Because <laughs> there's no point doing an article. And he says, look, the reason the articles are dead now is because LinkedIn doesn't care about them. And the reason LinkedIn doesn't care about them is because the user base is all about snack content. Mm -hmm. We're all about the the short, quick hit because that's what our attention spans will allow, frankly. That's him explaining what's happening. And I think, you know, in terms of groups, we actually have pop-up groups around short-form content. Right, we have we have groups coalescing around posts happening every day. And so therefore well, why do we need these other, you know, I was going to say legitimate, why do we need these other structured groups when you have these pop-up equivalents of communities that arrive fresh every day 
and they get together and they commune and they build relationships and then they go on to the next post. That's a theory. And I think certainly the money angle is, is part of it, but attention span is a big one. Right. And I really like that framework and that mindset that you've just articulated, which is like the posts themselves create a, a group in and of itself and call it a pop-up group. And certainly it's not in any way organized like, like a traditional group, but there yeah. is some commonalities. Towards the end of this conversation, I do want to get into your wish list because I'm super excited to hear about either what you've indexed, but also current state. Like what are some of the things that you want to do most? Before we get into that, I want to let you know that you made, you've made many impacts on me, many, many. One of them happened recently, which you may recall, you put out a post where you delicately said, if you like your own posts, like your own comments, belong in a pod, use broetry in your post, mass tag, hashtag stuff, <clears throat> your post, you are not hacking the algo, you are a hack. And so I have to admit, and I, I know I shared this with you, I, like many people, was I was liking my own posts. I was, in some cases, liking my own comments. I have since stopped since that post. I have not liked a single post or a single comment, frankly, because you made a very compelling argument as to why not. So I want to like pick those off one by one. So why shouldn't we like our own posts, for example? And conventional wisdom for those, not I wouldn't say wisdom, but <laughs> conventional thoughts are that if you like your own post, it, it, it gives it some help or maybe even a little bit of nudge in the algorithm. And so that's yeah. what some people say. That's one camp. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I want to put out the, you know, the, the caveat. If you want to do this, right, if you want to do the self-love in terms of either your, your, your post uh, or even indeed your comments, then who am I? to say, don't do it. I mean, if, if, that's right. you, yeah, if, if that's what you want to do, we all have free will, then of course, do it. Don't listen to this old bearded fella that says don't do it. Um, so that's number one. Secondly, how does it make you feel when you're doing it? If you're okay, if you're completely relaxed about that, and it, it, you, you have no qualms, then why not do it? But I'm coming at it from the perspective of look, it's public, that people can see what you're doing, and when you do that, and what's the perception going to be, right, when someone sees that you're liking your own stuff? Not only that, but liking your own comments. I mean, that, that makes no sense whatsoever, right, for you to like your own comments, algorithmically or otherwise. And I would say that liking your own content makes no sense algorithmically either, because the algo has got to see that and think, hmm, are we going to actually give this person extra reach merely because they clicked and they let's assume that we all like our own stuff. All right. So you doing that, I doubt it happens. I doubt it boosts. And if it does, I think it's negligible. And then if it is negligible, ask yourself, how does that make you feel when you do it? Mm -hmm. That's where I'm coming from. My big, big sort of takeaway from all of that, that post is that you have to do what feels right for you. Some of this is more important than other stuff, but also there's nothing better than just doing all of this organically without trying to do anything which is uh, kind of weird or perhaps doesn't sit with your values. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good way to think about it, where I am now firmly planted in the camp in which you've just described, which is, you know, don't do it. But I also agree that, you know, everybody can do their own thing. On the comment front, I, I guess the only thing I could think wouldn't if, and, and again, this is just me playing devil's advocate for those that are, are playing devil's advocate listening. If they like a comment, even if it's their own, 
that and then another person likes it aren't the comments that are more liked don't they elevate therefore get more visibility one and then two you've described the algorithm as basically not that smart so i wonder if in fact that they have not put safeguards in place that prevent people from doing as you've just said simply clicking i wonder what's true and i don't know i mean what are your thoughts on those two things Sure. So I think there's a world of difference between you writing something and then clicking on like and saying, yeah, I like that, in comparison to you know, 90 people, nine zero people saying, wow, Billy made a great point, and I'm going to give him kudos for making that great point. You know what? I can't respond to that right now. I'm certainly going to react. And the only way you can react right now in a comment is like, but wouldn't we all like to have mm. you know, a choice of different variations on that? So I'm certainly trying to win maximum likes for all of my comments, right? Because I certainly want to be at the top of that filter and I want to make every second count. So every second count means everything that I type needs to make some kind of point, needs to educate, entertain, inform, etc. To your second point about you know me saying quite a lot, the algorithm is not that smart. What I mean by that is... It relies a lot, certainly, on signaling from us. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that respect, it's not that smart. What I mean by not that smart is that it's not even machine learning or artificial intelligence right now. Because if it was, then it would be able to see our content, be able to assess our content without any signaling whatsoever. So it would be able to look at other content, similar content, and give it some kind of score and to give it a boost. And not only just to give it a boost, but to give it to the correct people. By correct, I mean the people that are going to love to see either content from Billy or content from, from me mm -hmm. because of you know all of the other data that they've been able to. I mean, LinkedIn have a, has a ton of data. And what I mean by not being that smart is that it seems to be you know relatively dumb in terms of the totality of the data that they must have. Right. So I'm not coming at it from a data scientist perspective. I'm coming at, at it from a regular user or let's say a super user because I'm obviously on the platform for hours on end. That's what I mean. But, yeah, at the end of the day, if you want to like your own content, like your own comments, then have at it. Other people are watching. You know, there you know, there's that perception. And frankly, you know, I don't think it does anything. And even if it does, it would be negligible. And then is that worth the, is that worth the cost mm -hmm. or the potential downside? Because it's it's not like everyone is self-liking. It's not like, oh yeah, this is this is a no-brainer. Everyone does it, so I'm gonna do it. No, that's not that's not true. I mean, there are a bunch of people out there who are saying, you know, one hundred percent organic tastes great. I'm certainly part of that crowd. Yeah, because I think what we as active LinkedIn users maybe forget is that we're in our bubble of yeah. we're on the platform all the time, but 90 whatever percent of people aren't. Yeah. And when I did that poll, which you highlighted that I did a poll asking people, hey, do you like your own comments? Do you like your own posts? And one of the responses, well, why in the world would I do that? That got the majority of the votes. And that's what the I, I think the biggest risk is. And that's what sunk in with me is why should I put my brand at stake for one single like? Right. Right. Because another thing you said, which I, I love, is that, you know, if you do a comment, especially early on, if somebody makes a post and you're early on and it's as you these are your words dripping with value and personality. Guess what? That's going to get 90 likes. Right. Especially if it's a big post. Right. And so right. I just love that. Speaking of brand and speaking of potential brand damaging activity, I don't want to get 
too in the weeds because there's so much I want to cover, but let's talk about pods for a second. Yeah. For those that aren't familiar, what is a pod? I know you you experimented for a little bit, but what's the biggest yeah. reason someone should think twice about joining a, a pod? Sure. Yeah. So pods are, in essence, they're collusion. There's a, a group of people that decide to come together and to systematically try to almost fake or put one over on the algorithm by coming up with um, uh, rapid, usually rapid, right, within the first 60 minutes of a, of a pod post. Mm-hmm. There's agreement by the pod members to engage either via uh, reacting quickly or commenting quickly or both. And what usually happens is because people are kind of compelled to do this because they belong to this pod, not always, but usually the comments that they're kind of forced to add are not the best. They're usually short in terms of awesome or this is great, a nice one, Gareth, whatever. They're never going to win the the 90 likes, generally speaking. I'm speaking in general terms. So that's the first thing. But there is this sort of this forced aspect to it that that's what you sign on to. You're a part of our pod. Therefore, you must must engage on all pod content within a certain time frame. If you don't do that, potentially you could get booted out of the pod. But that's how it works. And you're right. I experimented with pods two years ago, 2018. I started to one got to around 70 plus members. A lot of people I, I like and still in touch with. And it was all about experimentation. I wanted to see if it worked. And my conclusions was that it wasn't working. The couple of things I didn't like having to actually have to add something meaningful, which was often a struggle because they weren't all in my space. Mm -hmm. And so I had this commitment that I'd agreed and it wasn't sitting right with me. And the commenting was not wonderful. And people were not religious about it. They weren't pulling their weight, some of them, as the founder. I was the policeman of that. And I was having to go in and say, hey, Dave, why didn't you use this was the deal, bud? Got to do it. And so there were a couple of things, right? So we were out of sync in terms of content relationship or relevance. That wasn't happening. There was that forced nature of it. It felt artificial. And the lack of meaningful comments was my wheelhouse in terms of content. Now, as I was like coming to these conclusions, I also came to the conclusion that this ain't working. And further, I felt like the algorithm had kind of sussed us out. It had seen that we are reciprocal. We are persistently reciprocal and they know who we are and we're not getting the reach that we're certainly not getting the reach that we expected right so it was kind of already that kind of that conclusion and then just as i was coming to that that point one of the pod members came to me and said andy i've, I've heard that linkedin are investigating pods and as soon as i heard that i went straight to linkedin and i contacted them and i asked a straight question and i got a straight answer that my my question was i'm running a pod Am I breaking any rules right now? And the response was, yes, you are. And here it is. And it was whatever, eight to four. That might not be the correct one, but essentially it was uh, against gaming, right? LinkedIn hates any kind of gaming on their platform. And as soon as I had that confirmation, I went to the pod members and I said, okay, we're, we're done. And here's why, because I depend on LinkedIn for my livelihood. I'm not going to mess with that. And besides I don't think it was working anyway. So I come from pods as very much a reformed, right, ex-podster. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do it, frankly, not just that it doesn't work, but doing something that you feel 100% comfortable doing in every respect. And I think it matters a great deal that a lot of the people that are currently members of pods are not admitting to it or kind of keep silent about it. If they think in terms of reputation terms, am I comfortable you know, standing up and saying, 
I am a pod member and my content is initially boosted by these people. If they're happy doing that, great. Well, they don't. I mean, how many people have you heard stand up say, hey, I'm, I'm a member of this pod and this is what we do Never. every day. And by the way, you know, the engagement, I'm sorry, I want to apologize for the lack of engagement or the, you know, the lack of meaningful commentary, because this is what happens when you are in a pod. People are busy, right? They, 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 they move on, they, they drop their comment and then they do other stuff. You know, that's one of the, the spinoffs. Yeah. And I think the thing that you have highlighted is that you're now spending time commenting on people's posts that may be out of your space. You may have little to no interest in their post, yet you somehow feel obligated to make a comment. I experimented with pods on two different occasions, and I came to the same conclusion. I I won't say I came to the same conclusion with, do they work? Because yeah, I I got more views. I got more, but like, they don't work for me because I value my brand too much. If I'm going to coach somebody in on a podcast or even on what I've learned on LinkedIn, I want to be able to say that I've done it organically. And so therefore I'm not in any pods. I don't ever plan on being in a pod again. And to your point, people have free will. They can do it. And I'm not going to judge people can do what they want, but I know other people will judge and that's the reality. So I think everyone who is listening, who maybe is considered a pod or is in currently in a pod, you know, ask yourself the question that you asked, which is, would you stand up and, and pronounce, I'm in a pod? No, you wouldn't. And, it, and that should tell you enough right there. I'm going to skip past some of the other things that you highlighted in that post, because I do want to get into a piece of content that you've really leveraged and, and experimented with a lot, and that's the polls. Originally, they didn't do view count. Now they do view count. What have you learned in, in your experimenting with polls and why have you chosen to be so prolific when it comes to being a pollmeister? Sure. So before I go to polls, I will just say one last thing about pods. There are pods and there's pod-like behavior. And then there's other ways of getting a lot of attention on your content. So what do I mean by that? Well, I run a group on Facebook. It's mainly for Facebook trainers and people are obsessed about about Facebook. Uh, and I encourage all of the the, the, the group members to let the other members know whenever they post. So that's not even pod-like, but it's essentially, it's promotional and it's entirely, you know, up to whoever sees that, then whether or not they want to engage. That's, That's the key difference. So that's what I mean by organic, right? There's no pressure, there's no artificiality, but it is a mechanism for saying, hey, I just did this. And because if the algorithm is failing to route certain content to certain people, then I think that's completely valid. So what I'm saying is there are different ways to do it and to go to bed and sleep easy and without any kind of uh, coercion, if that's the right word. That group is called LinkedIn Action User Group Heroes. I actually started with the acronym. I knew there had to be an L in it. Mm-hmm. And I had LA. I thought, mm, okay, what else? I know, LinkedIn User Action Group Heroes. And there were people in the group that I think um, for like the first two months or so, and they had no idea. And I started referring to them as heroes. And then I started dropping the fact that we were called Laugh. And lots of the members said, I had no idea that you did that, Andy. <laughs> yeah. I love it. There's your humor right there. That's the wordsmith and the humor. So polls, I don't know why, but I I apparently got lucky because I got early access or early-ish access to that feature. And it actually came back. So uh, LinkedIn had polls um, 
some six or seven years ago. And in fact, I think they were better. I think they were better because we got more stats. You know, we got seniority and we got gender, a gender split of the, the polling, which is pretty cool. I don't know why we don't have that now. And as you said, we're getting views finally on polls. There are lots of reasons I like polls, one of which is that you can kind of treat them like posts. And depending on how you structure or how well you structure the poll, one of my favorite techniques is, uh, you know, there really should be a third, a third option here, right? Instead of just yes, no, there should be a I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think the I don't know often is a cop out because if you give that, then people will just vote and they won't actually go into comments, right? But if you force them to do the IDK, in other words, they've got to comment and comments are the rocket fuel for the algo. You absolutely need comments to keep that uh, content going and keep it alive. That's why it's important on authors, not just poll authors, but post authors to continually go in and to engage with their audience. Yeah, I like that about them. I like the ability to poll about absolutely anything. I got some crap from some folks that I was, um, well, why are you polling about chocolate? Right, the different types of chocolate. That did really well peas. too. I know, I know. It's like <laughs> I was just looking at that one. I was like, "Whoa!" I remember voting on this. Like, and it's like I don't even know. It's crazy. Yes, because I was one of those guys, one of those gals, a year, eighteen months ago, when LinkedIn started to become more like Facebook in terms of the huge variety, mm -hmm. right, of content that suddenly started coming on. It was almost like a lot of Facebookers came over and discovered LinkedIn all of a sudden. Thought, "Whoa, I like this." So let's have a party and so there's so much diversity in terms of content that was being created that chocolate cheese poll is me tapping into that diversity it's me saying hey we don't all talk about white papers and articles we can't flex our intellectual muscles there so why don't we just let our hair down every now and again why don't we just let our inner passion out or our inner freak right because we're all quite quite weird we all have our quirks and weird sort of passions you know one of them is yeah chocolate i mean in, i'm into chocolate i'm particularly into food. I'm a, I'm a foodie. So expect more of that from me. I'm going to do variations on whatever I want, but it's always going to be within a LinkedIn rubric. And that, you know, that in this case is, is polls. So polls are certainly about the engagement. There are so many ways to touch people virtually via whatever you do on LinkedIn. And stories is the same thing, right? That's another excellent way to be and do you show me how you're going to get creative with it. How are you going to use this in a way that stops people in their tracks, number one, and number two, actually gets them to engage with you? So stories, imperfect product, not wonderful yet, but it's just, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, LinkedIn can keep giving us, right, these new ways to go to market. I'm absolutely fine with that. I don't care that they're playing catch up as long as they keep doing that. Can you imagine if we had no features, right? Nothing new for six to eight months, we'd be going... Oh, well, that's what, what am I going to play with now? So I, I like the fact that they're doing that. Well, to get to 3 billion users, which I think is their end goal, uh, they have to keep uh, reimagining what the platform looks like and future proof it. I really love one of the things that you said. I love a lot of everything that you said, but one thing stands out and that is giving this other option. You have three options. And then the fourth one is other share in the comments. What you're effectively doing is you're encouraging the engagement that we all want. The other thing that, that you do, which I really love, is you're bringing up topics that in some sense might be controversial or people have opinions. People want to share their opinions. And a poll by nature, you have to give your opinion. And so it's like, it's, it's not just a like. A like's, meh. 
it likes the like, but it's like you're giving your opinion. And if you create enough of a value proposition for them to include a comment, now you're really creating a conversation. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think back of my mind, I'm continually trying to draw out the lurker because there are so many people out there, particularly on the platform that may never engage, right. that they're absolutely content just observing, absorbing whatever's going on, but they just for whatever reason, they maybe it's their employer, maybe you know it's the job that they have, maybe they just don't feel confident enough to say anything at all. Polls, like you say, do exactly that. They're really, really hard to resist because suddenly it's a click and I'm in, I'm voting. Oh, actually, you know, I'm seeing this other comment from Rich and I don't know Rich, but what he says is completely speaking my language or Rich is an a-hole. What, what is he? I need, I cannot resist. It's very hard. Very hard to resist, I think, some of the uh, some of the stuff that's going on in comments. So, and, and LinkedIn understands that, obviously, right? They want to give us as many opportunities as possible for us to to engage, and that's you know, that, I think, yeah, absolutely. The, that's um, the hard to resistness of, of of polls, and because it's so freaking easy to start getting involved and um, invested. Yeah, stop the scroll, make it hard to resist to engage. You said, and I I think this is a really important point that the data that you get is not what it used to be. Although you do get data, and that's something also unique about polls, which most people who maybe haven't done a poll may not realize. Do you do anything with the data at this point? If I mean, do you folk? Do you have a, a dark chocolate focus group? Obviously, I'm, I'm halfway kidding there, but my point is, you know, there is this data that you have that you wouldn't normally get. Do you do anything with that at this point? Yeah, so I don't, and I have a huge, huge repository of data. You're right, from however many, it's probably. 120 plus polls that I've run. And back of my mind, I've got some plans of doing something or more with all of the polls that I've run. And in particular, I would love for LinkedIn to figure out a way for us to go into the comparative data sense. In other words, if there are polls that are similar, asking the same, um, give you a way to compare and a meeting of the minds, because that's one of the issues polls right now is there's no way that is this, I think, might go to your question. There's no closure with, with polls on LinkedIn, right? So everyone who invests their time in a poll, it's snowed under by the next, you know, the next post. And it, and it, it gets lost somewhere. The author might have a, an easier way to find it. But, you know, anyone who, who invests their time in doing it, it's a struggle. It's a real pain in the what, and it, and it shouldn't be. So I think it's important for the, the poll author to give some kind of closure to everyone who has. I mean, that's going to be hard to do, but everyone who's, 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 who's participated in a poll. And so one way that I've been experimenting with doing that is by doing brand new posts but with screenshots of the final results. And then I've pulled out certain comments and I've put that in, in a document uh, alongside the result. I think that way of doing it, uh, but LinkedIn could help you know, with other ways to do that. Perhaps that's version two, or technically it would be version three of polls uh, by you know, adding these kinds of functionalities, namely comparative uh, analysis capabilities. I mean, having a tab, for example, for polls on any author's page would be fantastic because then the people who have remembered, oh, I did a poll by Billy uh, last week. Whatever happened to that? You know, I'd love to see the breakout. People would, would want to do that. And frankly, anything that gets that pulls people back to the platform, number one, or keeps them on the platform for as long as possible, you'd think that would be totally in sync with LinkedIn's uh, commercial objectives. 
Mm, yeah, I completely agree, man. And I, I mean, there's just so much, so many things that are flooding my mind right now. For one, when you have a, a, a poll, it, it gives you a permission really to revisit that individual and open up a conversation. Hey, I noticed that you responded to the poll. You could also have a post that does the sort of a postmortem of the poll. You can also yeah. do an article, which I know you obviously you started in the blog space with your in having an article that sort of frames out everything that was gained and the takeaways. I mean, there's just so many valuable things. Yeah. And the other thing is with the poll, and, and actually I, I just had the weirdest thing happen this week. I had a, a post just completely disappear. So when I go back, I don't see it. Wow. Yeah. It, 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 now I can find it if I go to notifications. So it's there, but it's not showing up in the order in which. So that's the first time that's ever happened. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff that happens. I had a post three or four days ago, where, and the views went from 18,000 to 10,000 overnight in the LinkedIn Action User Group Heroes Group. I asked about this, and I got this data from Shield that really helps to, to see this kind of stuff when it happens. And the COO said, yes. That happened to us a year ago. We wrote about it. Here's the post. And so they saw that, and their contention was that it was a server thing, right? So when LinkedIn either did maintenance or it just went offline for whatever reason, then your views plummet. But what usually happens, Billy, is that the views will, as soon as the, the, the maintenance is done and the server comes back online, the views go right back up or should to where they where they plummeted. Mine aren't doing that. Mine are still, um, I'm like still like 4,000 views short. But big picture is, well, that's just views. The main thing is that at least I didn't lose comments and that's still, you know, in a slightly upward uh, trajectory. So there's all kinds of weird stuff that happens with LinkedIn. And I think whenever something weird goes on, like that kind of a glitch, I think we've got to bear in mind that they are using very old infrastructure. You know, that's commonly what I've been told. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like riding a bike while you're trying to repair it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, look, man, there's a lot of things that we don't know. And I want to get into the algo in a minute. Part of that is that I had a conversation with someone about the whole live application. And I waited for a long time to kind of knock at the door of some of my friends. I waited too long because actually I knew somebody really high up at LinkedIn who's since left. But I ended up talking to somebody and we did some switching around of my profile. I know you recently posted about your applications that, that seem to be not arriving at the destination or what have you. Um, but I know one of the things, and I don't know if you saw my recent comment, but one of the things they frown upon is the idea of doing a meta a meta show. And I had said, oh, I want to do a show where I talk about LinkedIn. Well, clearly my application was discarded as a result, I think. And I've since reapplied my third time. Curious where you think live is going. And then a sidebar question, and it's totally unrelated, but I don't want to forget this, is the emojis. Because the other thing this person shared was... She says, and I'll read exactly what she wrote. She goes, I mentioned in our chat that emojis actually break out the ability for our system to understand the text in some instances. This is directly from a source on LinkedIn, and she's in the editing team. So curious if you've heard that. And I know you're not a personal fan of emojis, unless you're on Facebook. I know you're not a personal fan of emojis. So kind of part one is live, part two is emojis. Yeah. So on live, I suspect that live will, will not roll out to everyone. That's what I think is, is happening. Certainly based on how long it's been in beta, that seems to be the case, right? Because I looked at this and I tracked it back to the announcement, but LinkedIn live streaming has been available on the platform to certain 
certain members since a year, eight months and whatever, 21, 20 plus days now. So that's a heck of a long time for it to be on the platform and being, you know, consistently tested. And a lot of the people on that poll were essentially asked, well, look, is this going to be rolled out to everyone, to the masses? And I think 70% of the folks that responded say, no, it's not. So I think they're right. And I think who knows? There might be technical reasons for that, Billy. Can, can you imagine if uh, millions of people started live streaming? That would probably put a lot of pressure on a creaking infrastructure. So that, that might be a factor. It's interesting, isn't it, that LinkedIn will actually do this in public. They'll actually publicly say, in, you know, part of the rules uh, that we will not or we don't want you to talk to talk about LinkedIn, which is really, really weird and kind of frustrating to me because, of course, that's how I earn a living. And I think it's strange that LinkedIn would do that, certainly do it in public, because it's inevitable that you're going to talk about LinkedIn when you're on LinkedIn, number one. But also, if you've got valuable stuff to share about LinkedIn and you want to educate, and you want to train, you want to help people, then why not? I don't think it should be just LinkedIn's province uh, alone for them to be in control of all of LinkedIn, uh, all, everything LinkedIn education related. I think they should embrace the independent LinkedIn trainer and they should remove that rule and they should allow people to create and let the audience decide that it, whether or not they dig those LinkedIn live broadcasts, regardless of the, the, the topic. You know, let the cream right to the top but let the audience decide. It's kind of censoring. It's a strange decision. But there's also, there are a lot of other aspects of live which I don't understand. I mean, give us some feedback. If you're going to ask for people to, to apply, then explain why they, they were rejected so that they can maybe change something or improve something, but at least do that. And this talk of, well, you know, I, I got it on the sixth attempt. <laughs> it's like... No, there's something seriously wrong with the process where you have to apply multiple times. I mean, it's just inefficient. It's inefficient from LinkedIn's standstill, but also from the, 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 the applicant. I mean, why would you have to do something six times? And I said, it just doesn't pass any kind of reason. It's the equivalent of going applying for a gun permit and the person saying, you know, Mr. Salibi, since you applied 12 times, we've decided just to go ahead and give you the gun permit. Because it's like, that's how nonsensical that approach is that, oh, you must keep applying, Andy. Yeah, you've got to keep doing this. Look, I applied three times. And the last two, I gave all of my media appearances, right? Everything that I've done this in the last 12 months. And I've been all over, all over the platform in terms, I've guested on countless, not countless, but many, many. So that's not it. There's something else. I don't quite know what that is, I would appreciate if not just me, but people were told, but also the people that have been given LinkedIn Live and hardly ever use it or have not broadcasted yet. It's like, what's up with that? I mean, that's a failure, right? How would you, how can you give it to someone and then they don't use it? That's not good. And then there's the, the ghost aspect, right? So the person has it, but then gives it to someone else to, to, to use, to mm -hmm. host. How does that work? Or Going back to the mm -hmm. censorship angle, the people that come on and there's this rule, uh, I've been on frequent LinkedIn lives, but I've been speaking about nothing but LinkedIn. Do they get closed down because the host yeah. allowed that? No, they don't. It says it's, it's, that's weird. It's unenforceable. It's a silly, silly rule. Let's call it that. Let the audience decide. Let the great content rise to the top, but sort yourself out, LinkedIn. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I feel the, the passion and emojis. Okay, let's talk, let's, let's talk emojis, man. So, yeah, I personally have never been a fan of emojis anywhere near your profile page. Um, I'm a purist. I'm a writer. I'm all about that black text 
on the white background and let your words do your your selling and your marketing and your promoting. Anything that gets in the way of that to me is like, it's like, why are you doing that? And it, it even gets down to the level of the type of bullets you use, Billy, right? Because I just want to see black round circle, in other words, regular bullets, right? Don't go fancy. Don't go with the triangles. Don't do anything weird. None of that crap. Just do just write. And so that extends to emojis. And I think that's the part of you know, Facebook that I, I, I really don't like that's, that's happened. And I, I do understand why some people use it as a branding opportunity, right? So Sarah Johnson, uh, a great friend of mine who is in the career space, she is the briefcase coach, and she has a briefcase in her headline. Totally mm-hmm. cool. I, I get it. Who am I to judge? Why not? Another lady, uh, Brenda Meller, um, she has a coffee cup in there. And I continually, right, continually uh, yank her chain by saying, oh, so how's the onion soup? <laughs> yeah, it, looks like onion, it looks like onion soup to me. And she, she knows what I'm doing. She, she knows exactly what I'm doing. So, you know, I'm not pointing out. I am kind of heckling sometimes. To your point about, you know, LinkedIn admitting, this is a fact. They've said this to me as well, that when I've asked about what are the ramifications, are there any uh, negative effects to having a, a an emoji, a emoticon in your headline, for example, or in your name? It was told to me that, yes, that messes the system up. You will not be found in some in some circumstances, some searches, if you have an emoji in your headline or your name. And it makes complete sense to me because the system is looking for text. And if it finds something other than text, then that could mess your searches up. Now, if Sarah doesn't care, Brenda doesn't care, and they say, look, I'm going to stick with it regardless. People know who I am. They know where to find me. And that's that. As for the rest of it, you know, on your summary, your about section, I think it's all about personal preference. I personally am not a fan, but also think about, let's say 50% of the folks think like me on LinkedIn. And when they see this, they also dislike it. Mm-hmm. Or they would prefer just to have the standard black text on a white background. Now, think about that. If you're using, or rather, if you're not using emojis at all, anywhere in your about section, there are no such risks, no such downsides. But if you are, yeah, there's some people could go, hmm. What is that? Mm. I mean, it's like, so I'm all about like no risk, a no risk approach to using emojis anywhere where you're trying to, as I say, sell, market yourself. Now, in terms of punctuation, in terms of expressing all kinds of things, frankly, in comments, absolutely. You know, I love it. And it's a shortcut way to say whatever it is, praise, thanks, you know, happiness, sadness, blah, blah, blah. So that's cool. Yeah, I know. And, and I think the interesting thing is that not only is it less risk to do it for the reasons that you've outlined, but the other part of it is even if LinkedIn did recognize it in their system, and even if it didn't offend or make some people have thoughts about you, the other person on the other end, if they're looking on a mobile device, for example, I used to use Unicode text and I'd use to bolden things. I got a, a screenshot of what it looked like on a mobile device and they couldn't read it. And so you're just, you're losing a percentage of the population if you do those sorts of things and you live and learn. So, and people would never know that Billy, right? Because people who are thinking, oh, I've got access to all these amazing Unicode ways of expressing myself because LinkedIn doesn't give that by default. You know, we, we don't have those options to play with. As you say, they have no idea. They likely have no idea that it's a gobbledygook. It's illegible on certain devices. Absolutely. Either use with caution or, 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 you know, use it on a post, but use it sparingly and understand that some people will never understand what, what that word is. Yes. I think the key there is extremely sparingly. And you got to assume that that word won't get read is the way I think about it. Now I do use it. 
very, very, very sparingly. Unfortunately, I've recorded a YouTube video where I said, hey, go use this. And now I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But yeah. it is what it is. So dwell time is in vogue right now. People keep talking about dwell time, dwell time, dwell time. I'm curious about that. I'm also curious about this idea of we all know about you know the golden hour, the hour of power, whatever you call it, like right after the post. And now I think it seems like it's shifting to be a longer period of time. Curious if you see that as well and if you have any data to support that being the case. Yeah. So on dwell time, I'm pretty happy that LinkedIn made that tweak to the to the algorithm. I think in particular, if you think about why they did it, I think that's important too. Uh, my take was that the reason they did dwell time was that we just did not bother training the algorithm. We didn't give them adequate information in terms of what we were doing on content in the home feed, whether or not you know we were interested in it or, or, or not. So they needed to monitor something else, and what did they what did they have? Well, they had our scrolling behavior. So if we're slowing down on the home feed, that's the first the first test. If we slow down over a particular piece of content, that's the second. If we click on it, it's an actual click. That's not dwell time, but it's part of it. And then it's after the click. How long are we dwelling on that piece of content? And then you know measure the time from the click to the bounce. Uh, okay, so that's important. And then start with the comparative analysis, right? So how often has that person done that on this particular author's content? So all of this goes into the amazing dwell time tweak. I love it. I think it's great because anything that just monitors us without us having to actually mute, delete, hide, do any of that uh, is fine by me. But how does it play out in terms of our content strategy? Well, personally, it's kind of reinforcing what I've already seen happening, which is when I do a, a post with a, a, an attached document, then that's maximizing dwell time. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because this is what I call the article in a post wrapper, because I've got 1300 characters, and I'll try and use most of those to get my points across. But what I really want people to do is to click on the attached document. And while they're reading that attached document, which can have many different pages, then that's all dwell time. So that's all big thumbs up to the algorithm that, okay, people seem to be interested in this content. So I'm going to keep doing that. I think this goes for comments too. I think the long the comment is, the more that the author is engaging. I think that's also being measured in some way. So that's my take on, on, on dwell time. What was the second thing? I think that I am seeing a much longer tail engagement on all of my content across the board. By which I mean, it used to be this frenetic day where I would have to baby the post. What I mean by that is I would have to continually go in as soon after, you know, soon after publishing that I would have to go in and engage, 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 engage just to maximize reach. Right. So that was a thing for a long, long time. And I knew that my day would be you know, busy with with that kind of activity. Now. I am much more relaxed because it seems that it's not just a golden hour. It seems to be a golden week. I am still getting moderate amounts of engagement on posts that I've written like, you know, three or four days ago last week. It's still happening. So that's what I mean by a long tail of engagement. It seems from the author's perspective, the creator's concept perspective, you can now be a lot more relaxed and perhaps even strategic about how and when you engage. So I'm toying with certain strategies. For example, I'm going in and I'm liking all of the comments straight away. Then, at least from their perspective, they can see, okay, author's responded. That's cool. Am I going to get a comment from him or him or her? 
then the next day I'll go in and I'll start going either top to bottom or I'll go in at the middle and I'll start engaging on certain comments where I have a ready response, ready to go or, you know, whatever interests me, frankly, right? Some comments are, you know, there's not a lot I can say other than, well, thank you very much. But I always, or not always, but I tend to then add in a lot of my uh, responses and thank you for your comment. And what I hope a lot of people are reading into that that statement is that, okay, you're recognizing, Andy, that because I've commented, I'm helping you with your reach. That's exactly what I'm doing. So it's a nice to do, right? If there's not much else you can say, if you certainly just point to the fact that, or you you point out that, yeah, your comment's important in every respect. So that's what I've been doing, Billy, and I've been um, I've been more, more relaxed about it. I've been spreading it out over days rather than that, that first day, frenetic day of activity. And I think potentially... Has that been done? What's the extension? Why has it been that engagement tail? Potentially, has it been some kind of reaction to pod-like behavior, right? Is it a way to circumvent, perhaps, like popular knowledge that there's this golden hour? And that if there's no golden hour, then does that screw pods? Because, oh, well, when do we? engage, right? Are we supposed to do it within 60 minutes of publication or do we now extend it? There may be something to that. I don't know. It might just be something Machiavellian where LinkedIn have decided, look, we want people to be continually on the content, uh, rather on the on the platform, and we just want them to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it might have something to do with that. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I, I definitely think if that is one of the reasons, then it will reward people who are creating great content and doing it the right way. But let's face it, people are on the platform that are active. They want to get views. One of the ways that they can do that, I actually don't know this to be the case, but it's like the role that hashtags play, it confuses me. And you talk about hashtag stuffing, which I agree. You don't want to see a sea of hashtags. The woman that I spoke to said, think of hashtags like hot sauce. A little bit goes a long way. Curious how you approach hashtags, because honestly, I have a post that went quote unquote viral. I think the editors plucked that one and it only had two hashtags. It got more views than anything else and it blew up 4,000 likes or whatever. And that's for me, that's great. And so curious, like, what do you think of hashtags? And also it's like, when do people start from the LinkedIn team, start picking this content and say, no, yeah, we want that one to really go. Yeah. So hot sauce, hot sauce for content, hashtag. Interesting. I see them as signposts for content. So if you're looking for particular content, then a fast and easy way to do that would be to start looking for content via hashtags. In terms of the author perspective and you know how, how we should be looking at, at, at hashtags, I think there are other ways they are other ways for us to um, extend our reach and reach other people, as well as, you know, being able to find stuff that we ourselves are interested in. Richard van der Blom, um, LinkedIn trainer from the, the Netherlands, Dutch guy, he has looked at, at hashtags recently in his update of the uh, what I'm calling the Algo Report 2020. He did it in 2019. And it was really comprehensive and really interesting. He went, essentially leveraged his local university marketing department. And he said, hey, guys, I've got 3,000 different pieces of LinkedIn content. Help me out and research these and tell me your conclusions. So that was a, a seminal report back in 2019. He updated it. Back then, he confirmed that the magic number for hashtags, in other words, no more, no less, but three was going to be the best in terms of how it affected your reach. That seemed to be the magic number. And around about the same time, there's a guy called Pete Davies who worked for LinkedIn at the time. And he did something really unusual. He actually gave that guidance. He said, you know what? Three, no more than three, 
that's how many hashtags you should use on LinkedIn for your posts. So that, again, unusual because LinkedIn doesn't give that kind of specific guidance. He didn't explain why. He just said, this, that's it. And so three then was last year was the number. Richard's research this time round has suggested, backed up with data, that it's now it's one to nine or rather three to nine hashtags no more than nine if you actually if you do more than nine ten then that's actually going to reduce your reach there's no explaining that it's just this magic number that we should probably all adhere to but another guy kevin turner who also knows his stuff he did this little test and he did a search on various hashtags and he found that he could find them in comments so therefore really if if three to nine yeah three to nine is um and that's intro incontrovertible right if you can find them in comments then they're being indexed so in other words three to nine is the magic number however if they if you can sneak them in via comments too then you can go past your allowance of nine so you can add more right and perhaps what we don't really know yet is perhaps it doesn't ding you it doesn't affect your reach but it's certainly a different way an additional way to reach more people who happen to be doing a search on whatever it is astrophysics electric cars whatever that might be they will find that comment they'll find your post oh and the other thing that richard vanderblom found is that you know it's the popular hashtags by popular he meant over a hundred thousand followers sure those are the ones that you should perhaps be thinking of when you include okay which ones am i going to put in in my three to nine then go for the ones that are apparently popular in that sense and we don't have that much information on hashtags we really have two things we have the amount of followers a particular hashtag has and how often they appear in search results. Those are the two things that we have. What we don't have, and which I think we will have, Billy, and I really hope that we we have them soon, is we're going to kind of have analytics behind hashtags. So I'm thinking like a Google Analytics approach to hashtags. In other words, knowing when they're being clicked, a particular hashtag is being clicked, right? By whom, perhaps, or maybe, you know, anonymized information in that respect, how often that person or people are clicking, what time of day they're being clicked, from what location. Imagine if we had, I mean, that's a marketer's dream. Sure. And that's what, I, that's what I'm calling hashtags uh, point two, 2.0 because we're still at, at one right now. And then also we need to have more about the fact that many hashtags are custom, right? They've been created by someone but we don't know by whom. So I've got my own custom hashtag, but no one knows that I created it. They, they might assume that because it's called Andy Does LinkedIn. All right. I might have a problem if there's another Andy comes along and starts doing but I've been, you know, putting putting my topic under that under that um, you know, that's that signpost for, for a long time. So it's um, it's kind of, you know, solid. But so the other weird thing is that you have all of these hashtags and they're non-branded by which, I mean, there's no visual element to them, right? There's this ugly hashtag symbol. So why is that? I mean, LinkedIn should, I think, quickly come up with a a way for creators of custom hashtags to claim them, number one, and then to brand them visually, to give them a nice image, right? And then then the you know the back end the analytics i think that needs to happen for them to be truly useful so that's when they would be hot source right now they're just signposts <laughs> well it's a perfect lead into my my last two questions I'll, and in the and i mentioned that the wish list and so i want to get into that uh, before i just want to comment on the the whole 
hashtag sort of thought. And that is one of the things that, that I took away from your article, the 25 uh, question, frequently asked questions for um, the algo was that if you follow a hashtag and somebody else follows the hashtag, that's when you'll see a, a, a bump. And just to clarify that is, is, am I reading that correctly in that? Like if, like let's say, say like a personal hashtag, right? Mine's just my name, Billy Samoa. If somebody follows that and clearly I'll follow it as well. Hopefully I get permission to do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but my point is, is the, is the data indicating that that will give an additional bump for when, when I, when I do put my hashtag and people that follow it. And does that also apply for, you know, the more generic hashtags, which, which also, by the way, blows my mind why sort of accountants and accounting is like 20 million, but just accountants is like 4,000. Like there's, there's a good, you made a really good point, which is the go with ones that have high volume follower counts. And and you might, you may be surprised at which ones have those high counts. So I'm just, I just want to make sure I understand that correctly. Yeah, I think that's broadly correct. I, I mean, it, it's difficult to really understand, to truly understand what's happening when an author puts a particular hashtag on their post, because we don't know the full effect of that. We don't know uh, how many people are coming to that content, that piece of content, purely because you've done that. We don't have that info. LinkedIn does. So they know how powerful and useful certain hashtags are. But you're right, the disparity between some hashtags is insane. There's no reason for there to be you know, one with, with, with um, millions or thousands and then the other, you know, with, 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 uh, which is broadly the same. I mean, you know, the, the, the example you gave, um, that, that, that makes no sense. That's, that's, that's kind of weird. I think it's all about relevance, Billy. I think that as long as your, your hashtags fit the content, if you're writing about the accountancy profession, then you're, you're adding both accountancy and accountants, regardless of thinking too hard about, you know, oh, this only has 4,000. Uh, why should I? I think relevancy is the name of the game here. Um, I think that uh, we'll, we'll obviously, well, obviously, but if we do get version 2.0, we'll be a lot more informed and understand how exactly it works. But one thing's for certain, if you're not using your full allowance of hashtags, then you, you'll be missing out. On potential, you know, uh, audience, mm-hmm. because you know how how are they going to find? They're not they're not going to find you if you don't if you don't use your full nine. Uh, so that's that that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway, is, again, in terms of relevance, is that if you're um, trying to if you're trying to uh, get maximum engagement and maximum reach on your content, then the smart thing to do would be looking at other authors that are getting high engagement and looking at their hashtags to see which hashtags they're using and whether or not they're hot, right? Whether or not they're, they're most followed. Uh, that's another way of kind of understanding, not, not stealing their engagement, looking to see how they're doing it, uh, if that makes sense. So there may be, uh, a part of the algorithm that is looking for that relevancy and oh billy's yeah billy's added these hashtags that they, they make sense that they're, they're congruent with the, the with the content and you know typically uh you might get people who are engaging because they're either coming through the hashtags or because they you know well they're looking for those 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 hashtags as an example um or because they're, you know, they're just more sophisticated in terms of what they like mm-hmm. and how, how, how they can find, uh, how they know to find content. So I think that's, that's where I'm at on, on, on hashtags. I think there's, you know, there's, there's so much we don't know um, about it. But use, whenever LinkedIn gives you a, a quota 
of any kind, then, you know, maximize it. Um, Might as well. It's, it's, it's the same. It's the same with skills. You know, if you're not filling all 50 skill slots, uh, then why? Because someone does a search on the, you know, the, the, the 50th skill that you don't have, then the other person gets the interview. I mean, it, it, it mm-hmm. comes down to that. Brilliant. Okay. So I, I, I mentioned my last two questions. So here's the first one. So look, for anyone that is listening, who's one of my friends that works at LinkedIn, please take note because, you know, I don't know if you know my backstory, but I worked at Tesla and a lot of people migrated yeah. over to LinkedIn from Tesla. I also know you love electric cars. So sidebar conversation. So, yep. you know, things like, Hey, how about no views or, or fixing the trending post issue? Or as you mentioned, custom data for hashtags or easier ways to promote podcasts, for example, those are some starter ones. Those excellent ones you already mentioned, I think are, are worthwhile just, um, just, Going over just uh, yeah, briefly once again, but that I think views, a lot of people will get caught on views. I myself mentioned them, didn't I, in terms of the drop-off, uh, the cliff. And I think people have become accustomed to views, and it's it's so unnecessary because views really don't matter that much, right? There are means to getting engagement. That's all they are. And I think um, m- many people might think that or might, might not realize that they're just impressions, and that's a problem because if, if you're racking up uh, a lot of views, uh, then what are they? They're just people scrolling by your stuff. They're not actually engaging, looked at, or, or interested in your stuff. So if they're mere impressions, then let's have clicks, LinkedIn, right? That, that would be my, my first – give us clicks. I think we're, you know, we're all adults, and we, we can, if we only get a certain amount of clicks, we can do it. But at least we're getting clicks, um, I think would would be an important one for sure. I would I would really like something intelligent to be done with groups. Uh, it's I think it's a giant missed opportunity. Uh, you know, apart from the fact that yeah, we are coalescing around content, we do that on a reg- regular basis. There's a giant missed opportunity with those communities that have already been built, and I, I, I kind of feel that it's perhaps you know. It's a. It's a, all about the spam that's infested uh, mm. groups, and I think that's been the the problem that uh, has really been difficult to deal with. Um, you know, for whatever reason, it might have something to do with tools. It might have something to do with the, the top down approach, and uh, a lot of different reasons. But I think I'd like more. Um, I'd like groups to be fixed, frankly, because because you know, as a as a group uh, creator uh, who runs, you know many big groups right now it's like come on uh do do something with this right because it's uh if, if you look at faith the reason i you know the reason i i am on facebook these days is because of the group right. that i run and it's it's not it's not hard to to, to, to get right and it's it's a joy to do because we have the tool. I have the tools, and the community you know loves it, and that's that's where they're happy to spend you know their precious time. So don't tell me that LinkedIn cannot replicate, right? Cannot do what Facebook have, has already done in terms of groups. Um, I am excited, uh, you know, about hashtags uh, 2.0. I think that that would be that would be amazing. Um, stories. I think again, I'd love version 2.0 because they're kind of weird right now. I mean, you're 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 getting into fake uh, or, or unintentional engagement the way that it's structured, right? I mean, I'm watching one story and then automatically he starts playing it up. I don't want to see that, but the person doesn't know that I didn't want to see that, and so they're getting this 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 fake or oh, Andy looked at my story. That's cool. No, but so I think that's weird. Um, 
I don't understand why they need to be ephemeral. I don't understand why it disappears. I mean, we can save them. We have the technology to save them ourselves. I've saved many of my stories, but LinkedIn needs to offer that because if we're particularly proud of something creative that we produced, then why can't it be evergreen? Why does it have to be ephemeral and then just disappear? I don't get that whole. Uh, I don't either. Yeah, it's just that's strange. Yeah. Do do it differently. Do it. Do your version of it, LinkedIn. Right. Make it uh, make it easier for us uh, to do that and to save them and make make it a league. Make it competitive. Uh, where's the discovery angle? Right. We have no trending. We we have no idea what the great stories are. Uh, you know, we don't know why they're why they're great, and they then they just disappear. Giant missed opportunity. For the things. podcast piece. Is, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, As a podcaster. What what would you right. suggest? So, so you you you're uh, I think of exactly the same thinking. The main problem with 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 podcasts on LinkedIn is where's the love, right? Because we we generally speaking, if we want to advertise our podcast that we just dropped then it's always going to be low, low engagement. Why? Because we're, we're talking about something that's happened elsewhere where the audience are going to have to leave that particular post that, you know, advertising it. They're going to have to leave, listen, and then come back. And they're, they just, they're not, they're not doing that. Right. There's no, there's no inclination to do that because they're busy. And so there's got to be some kind of, uh, I don't know, either embedding it, um, linking it, or, or coming up with some mechanism where they can actually enjoy that content and for it still to work seamlessly with what you know podcasters are, are doing anyway. Uh, there's got to be a way to you know give give podcasts the love on, on LinkedIn. I think it's again, it's a giant missed opportunity, um, and. And frankly, there's a lot of content out there. And if LinkedIn could come up with some way to either rank or give feedback or five stars, their own system of doing it, that would be immense. Right? Imagine if people went to LinkedIn to find podcast the, the, the best podcast content or classified it in some way. Mm. Right? Oh, this is LinkedIn related. This is interviews. Um, you know, these are the people that are, um, are killing it. Right, guessing on podcasts. So many different ways you could slice that data and make it, you know, uh, a, a very compelling part of the LinkedIn product. And and podcasting is a passive medium, meaning you could do something else. So if you have like a player, and I have on my website, the player plays, I could still explore the site. And it's kind of like even when I use yeah. my my Spectrum app, it'll still play the the video right. or whatever while I'm doing other things. And it's like, yeah. why can't they include something like that that will make the user experience? And podcasting is so red hot right now that that I think it would serve them to keep people on their platform. If somebody's listening to a podcast, guess what? They'll stay on the platform longer and uh, they could do other things. Uh, Absolutely. So- Absolutely. That's yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly my point about, you know, URLs that I don't, I don't worry about putting a URL in any of my posts because frankly, we're going to come back. You know, at some stage, LinkedIn is certainly the only game in town, right? They're a monopoly. We are always going to come back. So I think that's why they're relaxed about you know, URLs. But you're right. It, if we could listen to something and it would be like in a corner, it would be the player and we're still on LinkedIn, then what have they got to lose? They've got everything to gain. Mm, so, 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 so valuable, man. Thank you for sharing all that. Okay, last question. You are a LinkedIn hero of mine. Who are your LinkedIn heroes? Who are the other Richard Vanderblooms and others that you would suggest, you know, for the listener out there who does want to really uh, broaden their LinkedIn knowledge? 
you know, who else should they listen to and who are the, the, the people that you think really provide insights and value in the space? Yeah. All right. So uh, this is, <laughs> this is a hard one, Billy. Not only is it hard, but it's also something I don't typically do because I am standing on the shoulders of others, right? Uh, people are feeding me tips daily. They're you know, they're saying, hey, Andy, did you notice this? And they're asking me questions. So it's definitely a community approach. It's a team-based thing. And they make me smarter. And they make me, you know, on topic and, and continually, you know, freshen my, 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 my content and, and keep, me, keep me engaged. Um, the expression, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go together. That's what it's all about for me. So uh, the people who I, who I rate and I love, they know. Not only do they know, but you invite many of them onto your podcast footnotes. So perfect opportunity to share with the audience that if you really want to know who Andy loves, just go to each one of his episodes. He has a phenomenal podcast called footnotes, which really does bring on the best and the brightest within the space. And I know you have a many, 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 many more people that will come on your show that haven't been yet guests. You're LinkedIn profile is linkedin.com forward slash and forward slash Andy foot with an E at the end. Your fabulous website, linkedinsights.com is a wealth of knowledge with so, so, so many valuable posts, articles, and contributions to providing value and insights to the LinkedIn community. Like I said, I have been a fan for years. Uh, you're also on Twitter Andy X foot again with the E what am I missing my friend what else and what else would you like to leave the audience with as the final word I would say you're missing zero nothing at all that was fantastic I was gonna say that was a fantastic footnote uh, to the <laughs> to the podcast I just want to say I'm gratified Billy that um, you've uh, found time to, to interview me and I'm really really thrilled to uh, discuss certain things with you and, and, and have the time with you today and I really appreciate everything that you do man. Hey likewise the feeling is quite mutual and I'm just honored to have uh, gotten the chance to have this conversation and, and learn from you and learn from your experiences and learn through you because as you've said you you, you know I think all people who are like you who have who have really amassed a a large collection of ideas they're not always your ideas and i think no. to show the humility and remember that you are in many ways a portal to all of these ideas and you're taking the information synthesizing it and making it easy for us to digest for us to consume for us to then take action andy foot thank you for being on inside out thanks billy thanks so much Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.